We now come to the sixth trumpet. And because by now we're well aware of how these judgments are ordered, it is in practical terms the last trumpet in the series. For the seventh trumpet will do nothing more than reveal the seven bowl judgments, the bowls of wrath. Perhaps the most prominent question to be answered, the one bandied about the most often about the sixth trumpet is, does the narrative describe an army of supernatural demons or the machines and soldiers of modern warfare? Well, that may be one of the more interesting debates over this judgment, but there are clues scattered throughout the passage that will lead us inevitably to one conclusion. I would contend, however, that in the final analysis it makes little difference. The outcome is the same. Now, let's read the first portion of our passage in chapter 9. Let's read verses 13 to 15. Poor guy's doing double duty here today. Chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. Excuse me. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. So we begin with verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. Adam Clark, he of our last session's opinion regarding the locust's long hair, that, quote, no razor passes upon their flesh, their hair long and their beards unshaven. Clark states that this verse, quote, is another indication that the Jewish temple, Jewish temple was yet standing, end quote. Well, it's pretty obvious that the locale for the scene in verses 13 to 14 is not on earth at all, but in heaven. As verse 1 of this chapter makes clear, the seven trumpet angels, quote, stand before God and are handed their instruments after 30 minutes of silence, quote, in heaven. Further, most commentators associate the golden altar referenced here with the altar mentioned twice earlier, each time in the precincts of heaven. This is the heavenly original for the earthly copy. 
the altar of incense that was positioned just outside the partition separating the holy place where only the priests could go. Okay, there's the building of the temple. The one shut with doors, not just gates, but doors. Only the priests could enter that building. Then once you were inside, there was this altar, the altar of incense, which stood before the curtain that through which only the high priest could go through once per year on the Day of Atonement in fear and trembling to atone for the nation of Israel. So this is the heavenly original for that altar. On earth, this altar was where Incense was burned, symbolizing the prayers of the people for mercy rising upward to God. To, to do exactly what we just did a few moments ago. The incense would be burned on the altar, the fumes would go up to represent the prayers going up to God. Its heavenly version seems, as implied here, to be associated similarly similarly toy boat, with the prayers of the saints for God to judge those inflicting them with persecution and death. This is thought to be the same altar referenced under the fifth seal. Let's go back and look at that. Chapter 6. Remember the saints under the altar crying out, Go get them, God. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Walverd writes, The inference is that this judgment, like those preceding, is partially an answer to the prayers of the persecuted saints on earth and a token of divine response and preparation for their deliverance. Verse 13 continues, And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God. We don't know the source of this voice. We know the voice comes from the altar, the four horns of the altar, that is, the altar as a whole, one voice, not four. But we don't know whose voice it is. It doesn't say. could be the voice of Christ, as many believe. But we cannot be sure of that. The voice from the altar issues the command to the angel with the trumpet to, in verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. We're not told why these four angels have been bound at the Euphrates River. The King James Version has in the river. But from this we can deduce that they are evil angels in Satan's camp. For nowhere in Scripture are God's angels, that is, good angels, bound. 
These have been bound, perhaps for some time, awaiting their release. They are Satan's angels, but they are ultimately under the authority and command of Holy God. As always, he is in charge of this whole scene. He's the one doing it. They've been waiting in readiness for the precise moment. That's what this text means. The hour and day and month and year. According to the Lord's will. It's not inconsequential that these angels are imprisoned at the great river Euphrates. This historic river was one of the four rivers dividing the water flowing out of the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2.14 So it was near the Euphrates that sin in man began. The first lie was told. The first murder committed and the Tower of Babel was erected. The river was the eastern boundary of the land promised to Abram. Genesis 15.18 In this region was located three world powers that oppressed Israel, Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. And over its dried riverbed will cross God's enemies to engage in the battle of Armageddon. Revelation 16.12 Verse 15 See how he moves along. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. MacArthur writes, Shockingly, from the altar associated with mercy come words of judgment. God is a merciful, gracious, compassionate God Yet his spirit shall not strive with man forever. Genesis 6.3 When this trumpet judgment occurs, the time for mercy will have passed. The altar of mercy will become an altar of judgment. Sinful men will have finally and completely rejected God's gracious offer of salvation. That's MacArthur. One clue that these are demonic angels is that they do not receive a command to kill. Did you notice that? Nobody tells them to do that. Or at least we're not so informed. All it takes is for them to be released and they immediately go forth to kill. It's in their blood. as if it's their natural bent. When let loose of their bonds, they kill. It's their proclivity. No one needs to tell them to do it. Now let's read the next passage, verses 16 to 19 in chapter 9. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sulfur. 
of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. ESV. Verse 16, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. The first thing I find fascinating, this has been debated and debated. The first thing I find fascinating is that there's no transitional text leading into it. Anybody notice that? The four angels are unbound. And suddenly, out of nowhere, there is an army of 200 million. No gathering of forces, no preparation, no, nothing, no segue into that. Just boom, done. Nowhere in history has an army this size been created, managed, supported effectively. Just the logistics are beyond comprehension. We may infer from this that this army too has been waiting in readiness for the moment to arrive. It was not, for example, in comparison, as we proceed closer to the end of this story, there is preparation at the Euphrates River. It's dried up. Why is it dried up? So that the approaching army from the east for the Battle of Armageddon can cross it and join the battle. We don't have any of that here. Just boom, there's an army. It was not required for the army to be collected and formed. It, like the angels, is already prepared and chomping at the bit. Now, the second fascinating aspect of this army is its sheer size. As I said, no army in history has been this large. The literal Greek is duo myriades myriaden. Now the Greek myrias, in English myriad, can be used to represent any unspecific vast numbers, vast number, but typically means 10,000. Here, two myriads of myriads, or in the King James Version, 200,000 thousand. Or as in many of our later versions, except the ESV and NIV, 200 million. Now I checked this and double-checked it. Numbers are not my thing. I married someone for that. But I checked. Two times, 200,000 thousand brings us to two million. Quite a few commentator, commentators are quick to dismiss this very high specific number, claiming it is simply hyperbole because it would be impossible to support and manage an army of such vast size. They're right. They're right if they assume it's a human force. 
If we assume a supernatural force, then those misgivings are allayed. More on this in a moment. It seems as if the apostle himself anticipates the scholar's skepticism. I love it when God's Word does things like this. For he immediately adds, I heard the number of them. As if to say, yes, that is precisely what was told me. Don't doubt me. They told me I wrote it down. 200 million. Period. Full stop. Verse 17 gives us more details. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A few months ago, I wrote myself a note and added it to the pile of notes on my desk. I wrote it after some discussions in class and during a time when I was, to a certain extent, vacillating about when and how much to follow the literalist approach to interpreting these passages in Revelation. At the time, I was creating chart number 11, the trumpets and finding images to incorporate into the chart. At the same time, I was reading some opinions, even from those predominantly in the literalist camp, that suggested the army John presents under the sixth trumpet could very well be his attempt to describe engines of modern warfare, thus alien to a first century prophet. As I said in class at the time, the sixth trumpet unleashes another group of bizarre, evil, supernatural manifestations, horses and riders who will kill one-third of all mankind, or these may be just John's way of describing modern machinery and weapons of war. Stay tuned. In other words, at the time, I wasn't sure. I was vacillating. In any case, I was up against the deadline for chart number 11, and knowing I would have no hope of finding images to support the bizarre descriptions in the text, I created a melange of war images that including marching ranks of World War I soldiers and World War II tanks firing. In the reminder note to myself, I wrote something along the lines of, don't you think John would know what a horse looks like? Duh. In other words, would the apostle, would the apostle, even if he couldn't identify what he was looking at, would he call a massive, lumbering, steel machine spewing flames a horse? Now, he might call it a beast. I know I would. What a beast! Of course not. He would, wouldn't call it a horse. Everyone, everyone in the first century knew what a horse looked like. Everyone. 
and could tell the difference between it and other machines of war, for example, catapults and Scorpios, siege ramps, the Roman turtle, my favorite. Just as with the so-called locusts under the fifth trumpet, John grabs at the first most likely image available to him to describe what he has seen. And just as the earlier beasts were not literally locusts, those before us now are not literally horses, but fantastical beasts conjured in the pits of hell for service to their master, Satan, and his angels. Thus, they are able to appear instantly and do not require the massive support of a human army. If a demon dies, who cares? If he doesn't get lunch, who cares? He probably doesn't need lunch anyway. Verse 17 continues. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. John first describes the riders, but really only by the colors in their armor. Other than that, we know nothing about them. He doesn't describe the riders themselves. It's almost as if he thinks they're just part of the horse. The color of fire, red, of hyacinth, dark blue, or even black, and brimstone, as the ESV points out, a sulfurous yellow. In other words, the same colors of the poison that would be spewed from the mouths of the horses. Quote, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. J.A. Seiss writes, They have riders, and yet the riders are parts of themselves, to whom no separate actions are ascribed. It is not the riders, but the horses which do all the mischief. I love these old riders. Mischief. They're only going to kill a third of the world. (laughs) Mischief. They are covered with coats of mail, the colors of which are the colors of fire and hyacinth and sulfur, answering to the elements which they emit from their mouths. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. While in Kenya in 1982, Linda and I saw firsthand lions in the wild. Heretofore, our experience had been with lions at the San Diego Zoo and its wild animal park, where we lived at the time. Admittedly, the San Diego Zoo is the finest zoo in the world and does much good work to protect and propagate endangered species, so we had good reference point points with these, but... In the true wild, however, the cats looked rather different. Having to defend one's territory and hunt for one's food leaves marks. They were not nearly as pretty and clean and well cared for as those at the zoo in the wild animal park. They were beat up. The female lions who do the hunting for the pride 
were often skinnier than their captive counterparts from first the exertion of the chase and second the low rate of success. Maybe one out of ten they catch. It's hard work. The males who get first crack at the captured prey were better fed but covered in scars because they're the ones who do battle with other cats for territory and food. They were a mess. Beyond that, the head of a male lion, up close and personal, especially with jaws and teeth agape in battle, is huge. Forget the mane, just the face, the mouth. Big. And far more menacing and effective than the head of a horse. But these lions, in quotes, kill by other means. They don't bite. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Keen off something in the next verse. I would suggest that the lethality of these beasts is twofold. First, there is direct assault. Anyone in close proximity to individuals in this army would be either burned alive by the fire or quickly asphyxiated by the smoke or brimstone fumes coming forth from the mouths of the horses. Second, however, because in verses 18 and 20, John refers to this army's effect as plagues. I take this to mean that there's a lingering assault as well. By that I mean that the literal fumes from hell, which these are, this is what comes out of these beasts' mouths is what is the atmosphere of hell. The fumes emanating from these horses' mouths overwhelm earth's immediate atmosphere to the extent the people will die simply from lingering exposure to this lethal smog. How many will be killed is stated in verse 18. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. The population of earth is presently fast approaching 8 billion people. The population of the U.S. is just over 335 million. Is it just me or does it seem like it was just yesterday it was like 200? Now it's 335. The result of the sixth trumpet will be that greater than one half of the world's population will be dead. One-fourth killed under the fourth seal, remember? One-third killed under the sixth trumpet, which, again, I checked this out thoroughly, equals one-half of the earth's population. Not counting deaths from other judgments. So this is better than one-half of the world's population. Thus, based on today's population, at least four billion people If Christ returns tomorrow, 
Let me get through this first, okay? Over the course of approximately four or five years, four billion people will have been killed. When one adds to the deaths the fact that society will no longer be in good condition to process all these dead bodies, oi, we can add one more reason not to be around to experience these days. Can you imagine? I don't think we can imagine. Verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads. And with them they do harm. This verse supplies more details about the weaponry of the horses. These monsters will sport tails utterly unlike the tails of true horses. So at the front and at the back. They aren't anything like real horses. But for some reason, perhaps at a distance, that's the first thing he can grab to describe them. Though unlike in design, the use and effect of the tails are similar to those of the aforementioned locusts, whose tails could sting but not kill. Here I favor the position of Sice over MacArthur, the latter claims that the horse's tails kill, but the Greek is adikosi. They do harm, hurt, do wrong, damage. Sice concurs, quote, As to the serpentine tails, nothing is said of power to kill, but only of power to injure, to lame, maim, sting, or hurt, end quote. So it would seem that the tales are there to compound the misery inflicted on the populace by this army, leaving the weaponry of the mouth to inflict fatalities. Now let's read the last two verses of our passage. Chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. And Scott, this is the last one. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. The sin nature is the most tenacious characteristic of man. It's been a part of every human being's DNA since Eden. It is not just tenacious, but incredibly strong. For it's nurtured, it is sustained, it is fed and encouraged by the very enemy of God. This sin nature in man is so strong, so pervasive, 
that it even overwhelms another strong characteristic of man, self-preservation. We see that in these two verses. Most sane people will do just about anything to live, to survive. Or their conscience will demand at least a high and righteous reason to sacrifice their own life, such as giving their life in exchange for the life of a loved one. By the time of the great tribulation during the last things, at least three to four years into the period immediately after the church is removed from the earth, every person still walking this tortured earth will have had ample opportunity to know, or at least to hear, that salvation, peaceful, joyous, eternal life with God is available in Christ Jesus. Coming up soon will be two key witnesses that will witness and prophesy for three and a half years to that. But there's been plenty of that so far. They also have had ample opportunity to sample the alternative. For life on earth by this point will have been reduced to a quite literal hell on earth. They will know from experience what an eternity in perdition will be like. Turn please to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Let's begin with verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. We may marvel at the stubbornness of man. We may stand agog at the utter stupidity of clinging to a lifeless idol over choosing life eternal with the only true God. But the evidence is clear. Not just in the final chapters of Scripture, but as we can see and experience even in the world around us that there will be those who, to the very end, 
reject the grace and forgiveness proffered by God in Christ. By the sixth trumpet, the Lord God will have given everyone on earth a sample of hell. This is what it'll be like. This is what you're looking at. Yet those not killed by this demonstration will tenaciously cling to their sin, unrepentant to the end. We've seen that through the seven seals and the subsequent six trumpet judgments, God, in a crescendo of violence, has heaped burning coals onto the inhabitants of the globe. Will he be justified? Does he have the right to do such things? Yes, he's a sovereign God, but is this fair? Is this justice from a loving God? For at least four to five thousand years, earth years, perhaps longer, God has demonstrated his long suffering, his patience, his forgiving response to repentance time and again. Along with that, however, he has repeatedly warned about the price to be paid by man's unrepentant rebellion against him. Read the law. He says, here's the blessings. Here's what happens if you don't obey me. On top of that, knowing the nature of man since Eden, his unbounded love caused him to offer himself in the person of the Son as a final blood sacrifice for the sins of man. Man was incapable of saving himself. He couldn't keep the law. So God did it for him. So is he justified in pouring out the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and finally the seven bowls of wrath? Of course. For thousands of years, God has warned that this was coming. Now in this narrative, it has arrived. The day of the Lord. I'd like to close by reading what Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote. Turn please to Jude. There's only one chapter. Where are you? It's after John. Okay. Let's start with verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defiled the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord will rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct Like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's what he's going to do. And they've had plenty of warning. In our next session, we'll begin an examination of the second parenthetical vision between the sixth and seventh trumpets in chapters 10 and 11. We have a whole, before us, we have a whole mess of parentheses to look at before we get to the bowls of wrath. Our Father, we thank you for these terrible, terrible prophecies. We would pray that the whole world, the whole unsaved world, and yes, even believers, would take it seriously that there will indeed come a day when all bets are off, all second chances are done with. It will be a time of wrath and vengeance because you are God. Father, we are humbled by this. And we pray that more in this world, would see your light and bow before the Messiah, even Christ Jesus. In his name, amen.